Podcast. Hey guys, it's Wesley. You're about to listen to Capone, and I wanted to let you know that this episode does have some audio issues that we're aware of. It is contained in this episode, and hopefully it's not too distracting. Thank you very much for listening. Enjoy Capone. Hold on to your butt. Come on, sucker. Let's get it on. Oh, you want to fight? You want to fight? I do not entertain hypotheticals. The world as it is is vexing enough. You don't know anybody named Iris? I don't know nobody named Iris. Can I have a piece of toast? I don't give a damn what you think you are entitled to. We are changing the course of history as we see it. That is what Western demands. How could you do this to me? Really, I want to know. Why did you do that? What you feel only matters to you. And that's all. No, no, not with a real fire. We offer you a bond, a family that very few can understand. Help me! Help you! <laughs> I don't do drugs. Or whatever movies with Wesley and Iris. What up and welcome to Or Whatever Movies. I'm your co-host Iris and I'm here with my older brother. Wesley. And today we are talking Fonzie. Fonzo. Fonzo. Not to be confused with the Fonz, Fonzie. Capone, starring Henry Winkler. The Fonz face. As the Fonz. <laughs> Tom Hardy cast as the Fonz, a.k.a. Al Capone. Can we just start? We always like to do a little preamble, but can we just start with this casting choice? I love Tom Hardy. He was totally wasted under those prosthetics in this mumbly, rumbly, tumbly dude. You don't even need to speak to play the role of Al Capone in this movie. I feel like the guy is tortured or he's running from something because he definitely plays against type, against pretty boy type as much as humanly possible, buries himself under the makeup and intelligible, unintelligible accents and uh, the sort of red-eyed, glaring, psoriasis, skin condition, scarred... <laughs> kind of guy right i mean maybe maybe sort of being buried under that makeup not just to suggest that the guy doesn't have range because he definitely does but yeah i don't know that it needed to be tom hardy in this role i think tom hardy really wanted to be capone i mean he's too young he's too pretty he's physically fit and imposing and yet he plays this kind of wilted debilitated crime ex-crime boss who's like old it's really weird i mean the same thing can be said for the entire movie the uh, the younger Capone that we glimpse for a moment when he sees himself as a younger version, you know, that might have been an interesting movie. But instead, he's the older, withered, not in his right mind, ex-gangster. Yeah, so we see the last year, Al Capone's last year, where he's suffering from neurosyphilis. Yep. But I was when I watched the movie, I was like, more than half of it was fantasy. And the other part that we were led to believe wasn't fantasy like we couldn't trust that it was actual reality that had passed right it's impossible i think to critically assess this movie without the hallucinations nothing happens in this movie he gets let out of jail he goes home he yells a bunch he falls out of his chair he dies it's basically six fantasy sequences that happen during seizures and and on top of that On a practical, realistic level, in terms of Al Capone's life, the stuff that he did do in this movie, a lot of it never happened. There was no actual indication 
despite the belief of some of his family members, that he hid any of the money away, that that's what he was paranoid to protect, that his family needed protecting. The hallucination which saw him shoot up almost every member of his family and, and part of his compound never happened, and we come to reality to find out that there is a gold-plated Tommy gun and that his gardener had been shot once in the leg, despite the fact that that never actually happened either. There's no report he ever shot a gardener. So we have these double levels of removal from reality that came to typify what Capone was like as a viewing experience. This movie exists wholly in a weird hallucinatory realm. It's almost like this movie shouldn't exist. This movie comes to us in 2020 during coronavirus. It was intended to have a theatrical release. I'm not sure how that would have gone, but uh, it didn't. It went straight to video. So we're watching it in this sort of weird gray area of movies where we can't track box office, where we're not sure who is seeing it because you have to order it specifically on demand. And paying for movies on demand feels different in terms of buying movies or renting movies, right? It's, isn't it different when you're paying to have a movie stream than if you're going to the theater? Oh, for sure. And so we have Tom Hardy and we're really trying to pin him down for what he means to Hollywood or what he can add to Hollywood. I think he's a capable guy, good looking guy, actor, not afraid of taking risks, but he's sort of disappearing into these roles where it's hard to pin him down. It's almost as if he's a character actor instead of a bankable star. And he is definitely front and center in this movie, but it's such a weird performance. You know, like the farmer in Dark Waters, he's almost unintelligible. And from what I understand, there are no actual legitimate recordings of Al Capone's voice. So it could have been any voice. And what we got from Tom Hardy is like this, you know, and it's really distracting. On top of that, this movie comes, has a storied history, not so much the movie itself, but it's director Josh Trank, who, as you know, directed the ill-fated Fantastic Four, which bombed at the box office. Uh, Marvel kind of swept that one under the rug. But this guy was really promising. Did you see Chronicle 2012, his first feature? Mm -mm. So it was one of the first roles for Michael B. Jordan, and it was almost a horror-based superhero movie. But Chronicle, for a first-time filmmaker, for a feature film, um, had some unexpected visual flourish and, and effects that really made it compelling for this trio of teenage kids learning to understand their newfound powers. So he had some promise as a director. Fantastic Four failed maybe because of studio interference. He claims that's the case. So he had a meltdown on Twitter. The movie bombed. He was largely blamed. And as a result, he lost the Star Wars movie that Kathleen Kennedy and Disney had put in his lap. They had every faith in him until he had an epic meltdown, disowned the movie that was going to bring him into prominence, and thus lost a Star Wars gig. So this kid in his late 20s languished for a few, couple of years in a two-bedroom apartment in Santa Monica trying to get something going. He, and so he came back with Capone, which he feels is his real first movie. And it's such a weird story to choose this direction and this time in Capone's life. And not only to choose this one year of Capone's life to focus on, but also to choose this time to come out with a Capone story. What bearing this has on us in 2020 is a little lost on me. I mean, this is a story set in 1938 with a character that is historically recognizable, but dealing with subject matter in his life that is pretty 
esoteric, if real at all. Like I'm supposed to know about the Valentine's Day Massacre, I'm supposed to know about his mistress and his illegitimate son, and I'm supposed to know about the legend around the hidden $10 million. It felt like it assumed that I knew and that I cared. Right. Maybe in this way it can be compared to Westerns and postmodern Westerns like Unforgiven. If we have the basis of the white hat, black hat gunfighters and the sort of history of, of Clint Eastwood as the man with no name, then we understand how Unforgiven is a postmodern Western and how it flips that convention on its head. And we see the aging gunfighter with a, a past that he's trying to escape from. You know, Capone feels like a movie that would be a later Godfather 3-esque sequel to an earlier Capone movie, which recounted his actual Chicago gangland activity at the height of his notoriety. You know, maybe, you know, 20 years later, the aging Capone and the stark contrast to his original life, in which in this case we have no context. Yeah, and told in such a way that really didn't help us come along and care. Yeah, so from a base filmmaking perspective, I feel like the film was capably shot, capably lit, and blocked, everything. It didn't feel fake. Uh, Getting right up in Tom Hardy's face, I felt like the prosthetics were kind of obvious at some points, and it definitely felt scene-chewy. He was definitely hamming hamming it up as Capone. Well, I think there was supposed to be some kind of charm. I think there was supposed to be some funny moments that fell flat. Yeah. And he was supposed to be kind of charming in his bumbliness. But I don't think it came across. I agree. And watching the trailer for the film, I think that the person who cut the trailer told a much better, more compelling story than this movie ended up being. Because of the fact that we we went down every one of Capone's rabbit holes only to come up the other end with nothing to show for it. There was no substance. It was all hallucination. And as a result, I kind of stopped caring. You know, every time we embarked on a new venture, it was inconsequential to me what ended up happening as a result of this, because I didn't feel it was real. Well, yeah, you knew that every scene was going to end with him waking up on the floor. And I at least tracked the Matt Dillon story. Well, actually, I didn't track it. I have some questions about, about the Matt Dillon story, but at least it, the Matt Dillon story paid off for me. So I want to talk about that in a second. But I just want to make the point before we do that I did not track the Tony story his illegitimate son's story. Which didn't, and no such person exists in real life. Really? Correct. In this movie of where everything is inconsequential because it doesn't happen in Al Capone's real life, it only happens in his mind, coupled with the fact that it doesn't actually happen in history, you can do whatever you want. I'm surprised he wasn't riding dragons. (laughs) But so why even make it about a historical figure? I don't know. Okay, so the Matt Dillon story. Presumably the wife, May, calls him up and he comes to visit Capone. Where he never interacts with May and we never see May's side of the phone call. Correct. They go fishing and then they're having drinks and Capone has a freak out and he tells May to get his friend, Matt Dillon, a drink and then she slaps him in the face. And then we realize, okay, he was never there to begin with. And then we realize that Matt Dillon's character is haunting him because... Al Capone had Gino murder him through a vicious neck stabbing. Yeah, after the fact, we learn that. Right. After the fact, we learn that. So he's a specter. And then he comes back when Capone is on one of his many deathbeds <laughs> and talks to him about money, right? So, like, I get it. If he ever existed, I know now that he's a ghost. 
And I know that he's speaking to Capone in his mind. But then who called him or what was the point of that scene with him banging that chick and him saying he was going to Florida? What, what was the whole point of that scene? Exactly. Kelly's point. If he's a hallucination, why do we have to set up his entrance aside from, you know, in a context apart from Capone? Yeah, why didn't he just show up? Additionally, the whole idea of the money started because the idea was volunteered by Fonzo on the boat to Johnny. So Capone, conceivably, in his hallucination of going fishing with his old buddy, who he eventually had killed, volunteers that there may be that he socked away some money. But none of that scene actually happened. So does Capone believe that he what well, did he plant the, the seed in his own mind? erroneously that he socked away money or is that all a fantasy did you get the sense that the money was in the statue that he was protecting and saying that if Gardner touched that statue he would cut his head off I did get that sense until he went into the water and there was money everywhere and then I thought maybe he was looking out over the water because it was somewhere buried in his marsh dig where it's wet exactly so is the money a historical thing the coda seemed to suggest that it was. There have long been rumors. And aside from that, presumably the FBI who released him, so under supervision, right? Which was, uh, which was noted at the beginning of the film. Yeah. So it's not like he was under secret surveillance. And definitely he had hallucinations as to people in his own house hiding in the bathroom recording his activities. I thought that was legit because Gino... Gino's waiting for the signal, and then he sees the two lights in the distance. He unlocks the door, and then the FBI or whomever agents come in to replant or replace a tape or whatever, maintain the wires. The wires in Fonzo's bathroom? In his house, all over wow. his house. And then they just he just happens to get caught working because, the one in the bathroom. But the power went out. Why did the power go out? So that they could do their wire work under cover. Ugh. So we had the uh, a couple different components. We had the FBI outside of Capone's mind. We had the FBI who was definitely surveilling him. We had his family also interested in getting his money because that money was under lock and key being Capone's mind. They could get at it, except they had no way of finding it if he didn't help them divulge that information. Right. Plus the right. doctor who had some kind of clemency and was trying to get Capone to divulge information. And so maybe that was financially motivated on the part of the FBI, and that's why they were threatening to revoke the doctor's clemency, um, because they needed information from him. But again, the presentation of all these scenarios where I could never trust what was actually happening made me hesitant to lend weight to anything. I didn't want to hang on to anything as being real or not, because I didn't want to feel the betrayal every time something would happen and I would learn that it didn't actually happen. So Tony had FBI surveillance and was contacting his father to, he contacted his father on Thanksgiving. Capone seems like he's together enough that that scene may have happened. He certainly acknowledges that they have some kind of relationship, if not shorthand. I mean, all the dude has to say is, hey, and he knows exactly who he is. So there was some acknowledgement there between the two of them. Tony doesn't give up and he keeps on contacting them and he gets May over and over again. And then he comes to visit. But after the house has been sold, 
and completely emptied of furniture, but the house in his visit is back in operational standing. And then, oh my gosh, the whole thing with Thanksgiving dinner with the family over and all that. In the same outfits. In the same outfits. Well, except for Capone, who's in a dressing gown. Like, you, like you've done before, let's take what we understand. Was there one Thanksgiving in two different versions of it, or were there two Thanksgivings that looked a lot alike? I would have to assume it was one, but I cannot even begin to assume that it was actually happening. Given the fact that May said later on, when Capone was complaining about the noise from the kids, she said, there are no kids in the house. Likewise, if he were suffering from neurosyphilis, why would he be allowed to chase kids around with a poker and be, and be safe? And, you know, it's, a, it's sort of a big, happy family. It seems like a situation where you would have kept Grandpa Capone away in a chair and don't bother him too much, okay? Because And certainly don't let him chase you around or no screaming or pokers. So um, I, I don't know. No, but but definitely finish your analysis of the Tony stuff. Okay, so at face value, I feel like this is what they're trying to say, that Tony comes and visits on the second Thanksgiving dinner, and they have a moment on the veranda where Tony touches Capone's hand, and Capone allows it to happen, whether he's mentally capable of acknowledging it, notwithstanding. But it's very confusing because it kind of echoes Matt Dillon's visit, which didn't happen, and they're in the house, which was otherwise sold and stripped. They're back in the house somehow. And the Thanksgiving is eerily like the other Thanksgiving. So did the Tony scene happen at the end? And if so, why? Well, two things. The distinction between Matt Dillon or Johnny and Tony is that when Tony arrived at the house, May had an actual interaction with him. She spoke to him before he sat down. They were in frame together. So presumably, he was an actual person, at least for the purposes of this film, despite not existing in real life. And then he sat down and touched Capone's hand, who, as you said, allowed it to happen, except for the fact that he was totally dead by then. Capone was dead? He was totally dead. All glassy-eyed, sat down. Tony arriving was the redemption, the completion, I don't know, of Capone's life. Because by the time he actually arrived, and I'm not really sure he did, and frankly, I didn't care, Capone was dead. Wait, when Tony touched Capone's hand, Capone was sitting there but dead? Uh-huh. The final circle, the, the completion of the circle of, of Fonzo's life was the final reconciliation, I guess, or reuniting with his son. Which was symbolic in that it happened, possibly as a hallucination, at the moment of his death. Maybe up for debate. This may be a Shane issue. This might be an extraction issue, but that dude is dead. <laughs> I mean, does it count as a full circle redemption if he's actually dead when it happens? Do any of these themes ultimately come to fruition in Capone? I don't know. It was an element that I took with a huge dose of salt, like everything else that I had been conditioned to accept with a level of scrutiny in this movie. That when it happened, I was relieved for the card. You were glad for it to be done. Uh-huh. That movie was an hour and 49 minutes long. Pretty lean yeah. for a gangster epic. That thing felt like six hours. <laughs> yeah. Um, Brian bailed out halfway through because he paused the movie, looked at where we were in the timeline, and was like, 
Oof. And then got up off the couch and went downstairs to get ready for bed. The end card led me to think that the filmmaker believed that this was about the money. Like the coda wraps up the film. I mean, it says the family relocated, changed their names, and the money was never found, which makes me feel like the filmmaker thought that the theme was the family and the money. And the family, the ancillary characters were interchangeable. May was long-suffering, and Tony, if he existed in the movie, did not exist in real life. And the money really didn't have any bearing on the story at all. Because likely it didn't exist in the first place. If no money was recovered, and we can't say for sure that the money actually exists, what weight or bearing does the, does the family having the money, or finding the money, or Fonzo finding the money during the course of the movie have? I don't know. So, my lovely fiancé, who I was worried about asking to watch this movie with me. Um, I, I said, you're not going to like this movie. She's not one for gangster-type movies. This wasn't a gangster-type movie. This was more akin to The Shining, in a haunted house, in a haunted mind, with haunting imagery. With like an it kid walking around with a gold balloon. Right. And despite that, in the middle, when Johnny, who we didn't know was Johnny, got st- stabbed in the neck 37 times she looked at me and i expected that was the point at which she was going to pull a brian and jump ship and she stayed all the way through wow that's how awesome my fiance is why did this movie get made how did it get made the way it was and what lasting impression does it leave either for fans of the al capone mobster genre or casual moviegoers and reviewers like us well, it's certainly not popcorn fair, and I can't imagine that it offers much for the gangster-loving history buffs. Because despite its its sort of dark tone, there was very little actual gangster throwdown gore. You know, he was crazy, but he wasn't reckless crazy. He was sad crazy. Yeah, he was sad, old, debilitated. Well, he so, wasn't that old. He was only like four. They said he was 48. like 48. Yeah. <laughs> Which was crazy crazy but the fans wouldn't be like capone was so badass in that movie because he was just kind of sad and demented it could have been a movie about anybody going through dementia i feel like tom hardy has a masochistic sense that the harder he has to work the uglier he has to look the more prosthetics he has to endure makes him a more serious well-regarded more believable and truthful actor if that makes sense. He's chasing the experience, and sometimes the experience is hard and sucks, and you have to suffer for your craft. I think he would have allowed himself to be put through anything for this movie. <clears throat> the Revenant? Yeah. And the same thing for Leonardo DiCaprio, who is definitely after an Oscar. I'm not sure if Tom Hardy was after an Oscar in this movie, but I think that a lot of these questions lie with Josh Trank, the director, who... A.K.A. Agent Harris. Yeah, who there? And Neil Brennan as the lawyer. That was weird. But Josh yeah. Trank was was so mired in his own sort of, he was the golden child who was going to be the next big Hollywood thing. Uh, that didn't work out. He kind of went into seclusion, um, was is trying to establish himself artistically again, but had a lot of you know depression and, and issues coming to terms with the failure that mirrored his own meteoric sort of rise to success. So him putting this movie together, he had his hand in everything in the making of this movie, right? I think it speaks 
of him personally. And as such, I feel like he was sort of, he's been going through his own sort of Coppola-esque, Apocalypse Now-esque journey, where the vision of the film couples his sort of vision of madness and displacement. Hmm. They call it the match game. And this kind of seems like this weird match game between Josh Trank and Tom Hardy, collectively and independently fighting their own demons. Exactly. And unfortunately, because the way you feel only matters to you, I don't know that putting those demons on the screen should be given any more credibility than anything else. I don't know that this gets a pass for being a better movie than it is because of the story behind it. To be perfectly honest, I had requested that we take a look at this movie because of the story behind it, because I wanted to see what someone who was stripped of of every value that they had in themselves as conferred by other people in Hollywood, which is a tough place, how they would sort of rise up and what their output would be in the face of that opposition. And can't say that they're going to pull Josh Trank in for the major studio fair anytime soon. I, I can't see that this movie would kind of become a cult thing. Unfortunately, this movie revolves entirely around Tom Hardy's portrayal of Capone in a movie that's otherwise frustrating. Johnny and Tony and May and Gino were all satellites around an unstable planet. I think that this is a Josh Trank narcissism piece about nondescript gangster who could have been played by any actor, but putting the Capone label under the Tom Hardy billing was the only way that he was able to get it made. This movie wouldn't get eyeballs on it if not for Tom Hardy. Is this his kind of statement of a, a Hollywood contrary picture? <laughs> Where he's, he's going against type and expectation and convention for the sake of doing so? I mean, maybe. It's a passive-aggressive... It's like post-traumatic screen disorder. Uh, I don't mean to make light of Josh Trank's pain that he put on the screen, but um, this is like kind of cathartic for me for all the trauma that I went through watching it. Yeah. I mean, yeah, we don't want him to fail. But, you know, it's also sad to see Al Capone fail. But how bad do we really feel about a dude who succumbs to untreated syphilis 30 years after he contracted it? In the, in, in the meantime, killing untold number of people and rising to, you know, a level of badness unmatched by sort of anyone of the Chicago gangland era. Yeah. His latter-day actions, too, weren't exactly sympathy-inducing. Right. And so, by some estimates, the amount of money he was worth in his prime was comparable to him being a billionaire in today's dollars. So, bad dude, and the people that reach such heights never go out in the blaze of glory that their sort of legacy would suggest. They always cut kind of a sad figure in the end. Well, I think that that's partially true, but that's also partially the narrative that we can accept. That's the moral narrative that we can accept. My last question. Did you at least crack a smile when the family member said, who is he? Goddamn Bugs Bunny? Oh, the rabbit thing. The ra- <laughs> <laughs> oh. so Come on, that was a little bit funny. You no, know, sure. But trying to infuse moments of levity in this film, which was so dark and haunting and sad was pretty futile right it was yeah 
Yeah, the idea of the of the gangster in his dressing gown and a carrot sticking out of his mouth. <laughs> this whole movie reminded me of why I don't do drugs, as our opening suggested. It's because, you know, we could talk about Timothy Leary and the Beatles and everybody talking about how, and the Doors, talking about how the drugs expand your mind and how you see visions and you come to understandings about life and the universe that you otherwise never would achieve. But to everybody else looking at you, you know, your eyes are half-masked and you're, you're slurring and, and you look like a moron. To everyone else, you're living out a fantasy in your head. And to your family and your loved ones, you're unavailable. Right. The, 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 the drugs don't unlock something profound. You only think they do. Everything that happened in Capone of any import or dramatic weight happened entirely in Capone's mind. And that knowledge, trying to pro- compel me, propel me dramatically through this movie, made me not care. Whoa, I'm bracing myself for the second nope in our podcast history. And so while I think this movie was told fine visually... While I think that Tom Hardy had a lot of fun with a role that he really wanted and, I guess, did a fair portrayal of someone who didn't look, talk, or act like him, sure, I was only more frustrated as the movie went on. As such, it definitely didn't clear the bar and I cannot recommend this movie, but by the end, I I kind of actually thoroughly disliked it. I gotta give it a high nope, if that counts for anything. It's... Not the worst movie I've ever seen, but I can't recommend it to anyone. But look, if you like Tom Hardy, if you like Tom Hardy gangster movies, there's a better one. It's called Legend. You get twice your entertainment value for the money. Twice your Tom Hardy. Yeah, twice your Tom Hardy, and he executed it better. And you could understand him more, and he was just as fat-looking and crazy. (laughs) What did you think of Capone? Oh, it's easy. It's an easy boring. It was boring and it was not good. So it's a boring. (laughs) So that was our talk on our pandemic streaming on demand release of Capone. Let us know what you think. 818-835-0473 or whatever movies at gmail.com. This is one of a very few nopes. And and I'm sure that Wesley would like to hear about any differing opinions. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Introducing the Deep Leadership Podcast. Leadership is a people business. That's the philosophy of your podcast host, John Rennie. As a former submarine officer who spent 22 years leading businesses in corporate America before starting his own manufacturing business, he knows that leadership matters. matters. Deep Leadership is real-world, actionable leadership advice from John and his expert guests. Become a leader worth following. Subscribe today. Electric Acid. Miles, are you ready to record our promo for Season 2 of the Wannabet Podcast? David, have you ever seen a grown man naked? Miles, we're not here to quote lines from Airplane. We're here to tell people that Season 2 starts August 18th. But I like Airplane. I know you do, but Wannabet is a sports betting podcast. Each week we bet $1,000 on the NFL teams and games that we love. Well, that sounds like fun. It is fun. And last year you picked over 60% of your games correctly. How'd you do? We're not talking about that. We are telling people that they can find us every Friday. So no more movie quotes. Roger, Roger. Electric Acid. Electric Acid.